I'm Wallace, and I'm an alcoholic. It's real good to be here tonight. It's always good to be with my people, and, and Buckwheat didn't tell that thing exactly like it is. I'll straighten it out in just a minute. <laughs> but I do want to express my appreciation to the committee and to all of you for inviting me down. Uh, it's always good to come this way. It's always good to be in a meeting, and uh, I'll enjoy this a whole lot more in about an hour, or maybe I should, or maybe I should take an hour and a half like Alanon did. <laughs> no, I won't do that. But if you, I do appreciate the how, how nice everyone has been to me. The committee has has been one of the best I've ever been around, and I think you people should give the committee here a hand. especially for their selection of speakers. <laughs> and I couldn't stand any more surprises. You saw me check out this podium up here. Those of you who saw Police Academy number two, you know why I did that. <laughs> Those of you who did not see it have no earthly idea why I said that, and I'm not going to tell you. Charles called me Tuesday night uh, right after I'd gotten in bed and began telling me who would pick me up and so forth at the airport. And I told him, I says, I don't usually have any problem spotting the people who ought to pick me up. Sometimes they hold a card up. Uh, sometimes they're standing around grinning like a mule eating briars. Uh, I can usually pick them out. He says, well, you won't have any trouble identifying this person. Just look for the tallest, the ugliest, the meanest looking man around, and that will be him. I immediately walked up to Buckwheat, <laughs> and we hit the Charlotte 500 and came on in to Marietta. And it's been a real wonderful experience being here. I can't. Uh, ever stop being amazed at the hospitality and love that I find in AA regardless of where I go. It's basically the same everywhere, but in some areas of the nation, it's much warmer than it is in others. And I can tell you that you people here in Georgia really have something going on that you can be real, real proud of. Alcoholics Anonymous is alive and well in this area, and I appreciate it. Vicky asked me tonight, prior to the meeting, if I was nervous, and I'm always nervous when I first begin. Uh, I, I've been ill at ease and discontent about all my life, and uh, if my knees are stopped shaking up here, I get on with what I ought to be doing anyway. But I'm going to tell a little humorous story, which will sort of help me get loose. And when I get through, I want you to laugh. Uh, <laughs> It'll, it'll make me feel better. I was out in Odessa, Texas a while back, and some of the older ladies out there, like Rosa, that's been sober a hundred years, they have the hair dyed blue. And the new people who are going into the program pick these ladies to be their sponsors. They call them the blue hairs. And, and 
this one lady had been in the program just a short while and she was having a real problem uh, with a, a part of her life and she went to some lady who thought she knew everything and talked with this lady about it and since she was a lady that knew everything uh, she liked to quote the big book and she told this girl that was having this problem if you having a sex problem you go home and read the big book now anyone that's been around AA for any time at all you know that it talks about sex uh, on page 68, 69. Why it's on 69, I have no earthly idea. Whether it's coincidence or what. But this lady got it mixed up. She told this confused young girl, if you have a problem with sex, you go home and read page 96. So the girl went home and she got out her big book that night and she turned to page 96 and she began reading. Do not be discouraged if your prospect does not respond at once. <laughs> Search out another alcoholic and try again. <laughs> you are sure to find someone desperate enough to accept with eagerness what you offer. <laughs> we find it a waste of time to keep chasing a man who cannot or will not work with you. Now, if I quote the big book to you tonight, I certainly hope I get the right page number. I don't want to make a mistake. I am truly grateful for this program. My sobriety date is February 16, 1964. I'm a member in good standing of the Deep River Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous in Sanford, North Carolina. It's a new group that we started back in deep December as a result of a resentment. And that's, a, that's the way that AA has grown down through the years. Uh, someone will get a resentment and they'll go out and buy some ashtrays and coffee pot and start a new group. And that's just what we did. And uh, we started with four members and myself January 3rd. And we have 15 members uh, as of last Tuesday night when I was at my last meeting at my home group. So we are getting along just fine, and uh, I do hope that we will not only grow in number, but grow in an AA spiritual way of life. We want to be there for the sick and suffering alcoholic in our community. I certainly did not get sober in that group. In fact, I was down in Raleigh, North Carolina, when I got sober, some people are fortunate enough to end up in treatment facilities and such as this, and I'm one of those guys that ended up in a mistreatment center. And right now, the basketball season has just ended, and we hear about people who were uh, drafted uh, from North Carolina, from Carolina, from Georgia, Georgia Tech, we hear of some who were drafted by Penn State, uh, and I'm one of those guys years ago that got, that got drafted by the state Penn. Uh, but it wasn't to play basketball. I'm certainly not proud of the things that I'll have to share with you tonight, but uh, they happened in my life, and I'm not going to stand up behind this podium and take step five. I've done it with both sponsors that I have. 
I only have one sponsor. I've only had two in my lifetime. And my first sponsor died uh, after he had been my sponsor for 22 years. I had nothing to do with it. Uh, and Tom Ivester from Aberdeen, North Carolina has been my sponsor for the past uh, several years. And I truly love my sponsor. And if you have a sponsor that you don't love, I suggest you get one. I didn't set out to become an alcoholic, and I certainly didn't set out to end up in the North Carolina prison system. I, I'm confident that I got off to the wrong start in life to begin with. I was born. And this was, this was in Roxborough, North Carolina, up on the Virginia border, about eight miles from the Virginia line. And this was in 1933. Uh, I know I don't look almost 64 years old, but uh, I am. I was canned a long time. And you can take an old cucumber and put it up in a jar with vinegar, and I'll, years later it'll still look like a cucumber, but it's not. It's pickled. But uh, I was born in 1933 uh, there in Roxborough into this very large family of cotton mill workers. Uh, very, very poor at that time. The Depression had just uh, uh, been a few years earlier, and my older brothers and sisters had had to drop out of school in order to help support the family. And Mom and Dad at that time apparently did not know what was causing it because 12 of us came along. But uh, they gave up after me and my baby sister came along. And... Uh, it, it just didn't happen anymore. Uh, anyway, we lived in that cod mill village for several years. When I was at the age of five, we moved over into Virginia. We began farming. We farmed in Virginia for a few years and then came back to North Carolina and continued to farm until I was 16 years old. I had very, very bad feelings about myself as a kid. Uh, I've always been tall and skinny. Uh, I always felt bad about myself. Uh, I just felt inferior, inadequate, not as strong as other boys my age. Uh, I had to work hard in the field. I could not run and play during the summer months uh, the way other kids did. Uh, I had to be in the field working or around the house doing chores. And I really resented my father being so strict on us. Uh, when he spoke, he intended for us to jump, and if we didn't jump, he would make us jump. I wanted to be down at the golf course caddying, or I wanted to be down at the lake fishing, and when we would have to go into that field and work, I really resented it. I resented having to go to church Wednesday night, Sunday morning, Sunday night. They were attending a Baptist church in those days. And I just didn't like it. I couldn't accept their belief in God. A little bit later on, they got into another denomination that was very, very strict, even stricter than the Baptists. And it seems like that everything they did was a sin. And uh, I didn't uh, like being in that church. They were quite noisy. It was quite confusing to me. I didn't know what was going on. I never felt in church the way they did. And uh, I certainly didn't want to be there, but yet I was forced to go. I had a brother, I still have a brother, that's a doctor of divinity. And he is in South Carolina 
tonight, so far as I know, he's in very critical condition. He's dying of cancer. He's 85 years old. But as a small kid, I didn't like this brother. This brother would come to Roxborough every year, at least once a year, very religiously, to see the family. And Mom always felt that he was something special. Uh, when he would come home, Mom would cook up hams and chicken and bake pies and cakes and put out an awful lot of vegetables and had the best meal we'd had all year. And then she'd ask my preacher brother to say grace. And this is back during World War II. And my preacher brother would be at the end of the table and he'd start praying for Franklin and then he'd pray for Eleanor. Then he'd pray for General MacArthur. He'd pray for all the boys in Iwo Jima, Okinawa, Japan, and Germany. And my mom had 17 brothers and sisters. He'd call each brother and sister by name and then he'd jump on the nephews and he'd call all my brothers and sisters by name. And then he'd give God directions, dry the land up if it's too wet, wet it if it's too dry. And I'm standing at the end of the table because there's no seat for me and I want a piece of that chicken and I keep listening. And by the time he had gotten to Iwo Jima one time, I reached down and got me a piece of chicken and I feel stripped it. And he got on down a little bit farther to about Okinawa and I had knocked off another piece of chicken. And by the time he got through with all my mother's aunts and uncles and cousins and brothers, I had eaten several pieces of chicken. And when he said amen and my father saw those bones, he tore my fanny up. <laughs> I can tell you, I never ate no more chicken while my brother was saying grace. I reluctantly eat it today. I didn't like that preacher brother. He would always, even when I was six years old, seven years old, eight years old, he'd take me down behind the barn and give me a man-to-man -man talk. The last time he had me behind the barn, I was about 14 years old. And he's one of those guys that would change his voice, it seemed to me, when he talked. And he would talk down at me. He had me down behind that barn, and that morning he says, Wallace. If you ever drink white whiskey or play with yourself, you're going to hell. <laughs> I had never touched a drop of liquor in my life, and I was already in trouble. <laughs> I said, you'll never get me behind this barn again, and he didn't. I didn't like it. We continued to farm, and that brother continued to come once a year, and at the age of 16, my father stood up one morning and announced that we were through farming. He had had enough. I'm only 16 years old, and I'd had enough. I didn't like unmilking all those cows and slopping those hogs and working in that field. We had a mule I hated with a passion. I really hated that joker. It was the longest, the tallest, the ugliest, the skinniest, the most ornery critter you can possibly imagine. And I had had to plow her for years. And I remember how that joker used to break wind and look back at me and grin. <laughs> and I said that I'd never tell another mule to get up as long as I live, not even if she sat down in my lap. And I haven't. I've got a tiller at home today. 
we quit farming and my father didn't force me back to school and at that time that was one objective in my life I wanted an automobile at the age of 16 I had already gotten my driver's license but my father would not let me use his car I could not ride around on weekends like the neighboring boys did uh, who were driving their father's car. My father would not let me drive his car unless I was running an errand. I wanted an automobile desperately. And he says, if you want a car, you'll go to work and you'll pay for it. And at the age of 17, I had gotten that automobile. And at the age of 17, other boys began to run with me who were older than I. All of a sudden, Wallace was popular. On weekends, he had money in his pocket. He had the automobile. And these older guys began to run with him and seemed to enjoy his company. And I really liked the new popularity that I had. It was the first time I had been real popular. And I ate it up. And I began to ride those boys around, and they began to drink beer, and they asked me to have a beer, and I had a beer with them. Didn't like the taste of it, and for the next couple of years, I drank a little beer with those guys, and I pulled out an awful lot of good beer during that first two years. I didn't want them to know I was drinking so little, but yet I wanted to be accepted. I didn't drink any whiskey until after I had been drafted into the Army in 1953. The Korean War was in progress, and I had been drafted at the age of 19 and went down to Fort Jackson for, for training. I left there, went to Fort Lee, Virginia, and then in November of 1953, I came back to Roxborough one Saturday night for a weekend pass. And that Saturday night, I went out to a round and square dance, a room not quite as big as this one. It was an old garage-type building that had been converted into a dance hall. And I went into that dance that night. I had been out there several other times in my life, but I had never danced. And that particular Saturday night, I'm out there, and I drank a couple of beers, and I'm standing back at the heater watching people. I did an awful lot of watching people in those days because I absolutely could not get out and participate and be a part of what was going on. I was so shy, so timid, uh, so backward, so ignorant, so uneducated. I just could not participate. I could not enjoy life the way that other people were enjoying life. And I would just stand back and watch you have a good time and be very, very envious of you for having fun because I wasn't having fun. But that particular Saturday night, I'm back at this, uh, in this round and square dance area, and I'm back next to a big old heater. And that night, I had on the Army OD uniform that was very tight-fitting. Uh, I had a flat-top haircut. My shoes were real shined. I had bought some pins and put on my shoulders to enhance the looks of the uniform. I also had on all of the medals I had earned that afternoon at the PX. <laughs> and I'm standing over there at the heat of minding my own business. And that night when I look over to the concession stand and the door, I never will forget the sight I saw. I can see it right now in my mind and I hope to God I never forget. Into that room came two beautiful protrusions that were attached to a beautiful woman. 
And I mean, they came in a long time before she did. And when they came into the room and she was right behind them, she began walking over toward that heat of where I was, and they was just a bounce. That dress was cut so low I thought I saw her kneecaps at first, but it wasn't. She came over to the heater and started talking to me, and I was ill at ease and discontent, and I was embarrassed, and I was stuttering and looking around to see who was looking at me. I had never been seen or had talked to anyone who had a reputation like that, and even though I had never seen this woman, I knew exactly who she was because of some stories I'd heard when I was in the pool rooms, the service stations, and the beer joints. I had heard some stories about her that would curl your hat. And she was talking to me, and then she asked me in a few minutes, would I escort her out to her car in the parking lot? And you know, I'm right out of basic training. Maybe it's my patriotic duty. I'm supposed to. So I escorted her out to her car. And we got in that car that cold November night, and it was a very, very cold November night. And she started that old Chevrolet up, and then she reached over and turned the radio on, started it up on that country and western music, and then she reached way over and got that little button that turns the heater on. She started it up, and while she was over there, she sort of straightened up right next to me and tried to start me up. And I was calling the old Chevrolet. And I sat there for a few minutes, ill at ease and discontent. And uh, she wasn't making much progress. And uh, finally, she reached up on the seat, and she came out with a pint of whiskey and two cups. And I thought at first she must be mighty thirsty. <laughs> and then when she began to pour and start pouring that whiskey into the cup, I thought maybe she's going to ask me to take a drink of liquor. And I've never drank any whiskey. And I got to thinking about the things I'd heard about her, you know, when I'd be in those service stations and pool rooms and beer joints. And I began to think about the possibilities of the evening. I began to look at her, and I'd look at that liquor, and I'd look at them, and I'd look at the liquor, and I'd look back at them, and them told me to take a drink. And when she handed that cup to me, I pulled that Jesse down and tried to act as if this was something I had been doing all my life. And shortly thereafter, I took another with them. And within 30 minutes, there in that well-lit parking lot, I had slid from this door over underneath the steering wheel, had become a little bit aggressive, and she suggested we go into the dance. We went into the dance, and just about the time we got in there, the old fiddle and guitar and banjo struck up that tune. I'd heard this band many times before, but tonight, for some reason, the music was different. They began to play a tune called Bile Them Cabbage Down, Bake Them Whole Cakes Brown. And everybody giant hands and start running around that place, and she grabbed me by the hand, and out on the floor we went. I did not hesitate one moment. And we began to run with the other people around that place, and after we'd circled that room about twice, I could dose a dose. I could promenade or lemonade or whatever it was that they were doing. <laughs> a little bit later on, we did the bunny hop, and it just come natural. I got carried away. I enjoyed all of the attention. I was 
I was the envy of every man in that house. They wanted to be on the floor with that woman, but she was out there with me, and I was eating it up. I mean, I was enjoying it. I loved it. For the first time in my life, I really felt like I was a part of what was going on. Now, I'm not going to tell you everything that happened, but about 2 or 2.30 Sunday morning, I'm upstairs in the bed at my father's house. I'm laying there fighting off sleep. I don't ever, ever, ever want to go to sleep. I want to lay there and recall each glorious moment of Saturday night. Just relive it over and over and over again. I'd find myself falling asleep and I'd shake and wake up because I just wanted to continue thinking about the mountains I had climbed and the valleys I had crossed and how I had grown up and become a man, how that mom and dad, my preacher brother, had been lying to me all their life. They had telling me that booze was something that would send you to hell, and I had been in absolute heaven. I had enjoyed it. And I lay there that morning in that bed knowing that I had found a solution to my problem. I knew that come the next Saturday night I would be at a dance somewhere or I'd be out with people, but I'd have that magic ingredient with me. I knew that it enabled me to be a part of what was going on. It allowed me to feel normal. And I've known since I come in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous that from that very first night that that magic took place. I have, I drank liquor because of what Dr. Silkworth says. We drank for the effect of it. That's the reason I drank, because it changed the way I felt. But later on in my life, in the last years of my drinking, I drank because of the reason that we find on page 37 of the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. And it talks about on that page that there were times in our lives because of feelings of rage, resentment, bitterness, and so forth, we went out and deliberately got drunk. And that when we drank under those circumstances, not once would we consider what the consequences of our drinking would be. And I do know that the last years of my life, there were times that I deliberately went out to get drunk. During the early years of my drinking, I just wanted to reach that little euphoric plateau where everything was okay, where my world was okay, where I could dance, laugh, talk, socialize, and be a part of what was going on. I did not set out to get drunk in the early days. But quite often, many, many times, I passed that little place before I ever knew I had been there, and I'd end up getting drunk and end up getting in trouble. And, and like I've heard someone else say, I did not get in trouble every time I drank. But every time I was in trouble, it was because of drinking and the insanity that came about in my life. I'm one of the most insane, low-bottom people I've ever met in all of my life. And I'm certainly not proud of the incidents that took place later on. Within six weeks after taking that first drink of booze with that girl at that dance hall, I came to in jail one Monday morning 
uh, not knowing why I was there, what I had been charged with, or what had happened. I had been caught late Sunday afternoon for driving under the influence. That was six weeks after taking my first drink of whiskey. And during the next ten years of my life, there were some 14 to 20 different charges of driving under the influence, driving after license revoke, resisting arrest, striking police officers, and such as this. On and on and on and on. Always getting into trouble. The illness that I had, which I did not know I had at the time, would tell me, oh boy, if you drive around this portion of town to get over there, the cops won't be looking for you over there. And I'd listen to that illness and I'd go that way and I'd get caught again. I finally got to the point that I felt like that they were picking on me. That they just deliberately sat out there in the bushes and waited for me to drive so they could catch me. It, it was very, very inconvenient losing license and, and not having license that way, but I can tell you that I immediately crossed over that invisible line or I immediately lost control or whatever you want to call it. I'm not sure as to why I'm an alcoholic, and I don't care why I'm an alcoholic. I hear people talking about they drink too much too long and they cross over the invisible line from controlled drinking to uncontrolled drinking. I hear people say the mommy put them on the potty backwards when they were little kids and this caused them to become alcoholics. Some say it's genetic. I don't care why I'm alcoholic. Absolutely, totally unconcerned as to why I'm an alcoholic. What I am concerned about is that I am aware of it and I do know that there's a way and means of doing something about it, and I never was able to do anything about it until I got to the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. Alcoholism and insanity cost me an awful lot of jobs. It cost me the respect of an awful lot of people. It caused me to lose my dignity. It caused me to be unable to hold my head up and look people in the eye. It cost me job after job after job. There were periods, two different periods of dryness in my adult life when I got along okay because I wasn't drinking even though I was miserable. I got out of the Army the first time in 1955 with an honorable discharge, but I went back in in 1956 because of all of the problems I had picked up during the 18 months I'd been out. During that 18 months, I'd lost job after job. I'd got my license back, and I lost them again, and I'd been caught several times for driving after license revoked and was paying fines, and it was just a mess. And also, during that 18 months that I was out of the Army, uh, I borrowed money from Mom and Dad. Sometimes they knew I borrowed it. Sometimes they did not know I borrowed it. <laughs> And I was miserable. I couldn't drive, I couldn't go places, and I ha always having to depend on other people. And, and about this time, my girlfriend told me that we should get married, and I told her that I was in no condition to get married, and she said, the condition I'm in, we'd better get married. <laughs> I borrowed a little money from Mama, and we went off down to South Carolina and got married, and I'm put her in my brother-in-law and sister's home, and some nine days later, after begging the people down at Fort Bragg, I was back on active duty through the National Guard. 
I wanted to go back in service and get as far away from North Carolina as I could and stay as long as I could. And they rushed up the paperwork, and I was back in the Army again through the National Guard with the rank of corporal, which I had made during the 18 months I was out. I think they're crazy. I shouldn't have been promoted from PFC to corporal. But being in the National Guard, I don't guess it takes much of a qualification to make corporal. But anyway, I had gone back in uh, through the National Guard with the rank of corporal. And a couple of months later, I'm en route to Korea. And when I'm on the deck of that ship en route to Korea, I've been out on the water for about eight days. And I got to thinking, oh boy, when you drink, you get in trouble. Now you've got an equal opportunity to get your life in order. When you get to Korea, the people won't know you over there. Why not give up drinking? Why not start over? And I determined in my mind that I would do that. And when I arrived in Korea, I immediately enrolled in school at night. I immediately began to do the things that I should do to impress people. For five consecutive months, I was soldier of the month in my company. For three consecutive months, battalion soldier of the month. After five months, I met the promotion board and was promoted to sergeant. The same Saturday afternoon that I was promoted to sergeant, I went down to the 38th Ordnance Club to celebrate my rank with some friends and began to buy them some drinks. And within 15 to 20 minutes after I had bought those guys some drinks, I sat there and listened to the illness that I had, which I did not know I had, talk to me. It told me, oh boy, you've been over here five and a half months now. You've gotten along well. You've got the respect of the people. In just five and a half months, you've gone up to the rank of sergeant. You haven't had a drink. In fact, you haven't had anything. You need to reward yourself. And I began to look at the girls, uh, Korean girls who had the miniskirts on, dancing with the GIs, and I thought how nice a reward would be. And I took action to reward myself, and I also listened to that illness talking to me and thought that I would drink a beer and celebrate and socialize with those guys. I did that. But some two, two and a half hours later, they threw me out of the club, head first, through the screen door. I had become drunk disorderly and had made a complete fool of myself. Shortly thereafter, as a result of drinking on duty, shortly thereafter, as a result of insanity and as a result of larceny, as a result of an effort to get money to finance my insane drinking habit, I was court-martialed and reduced back down to corporal, and then I was restricted to the company area more than I was allowed to go into the village because my life was totally unmanageable and out of control. Uh, I had arrived back in the States in 1958 with the rank of corporal. I met my little daughter for the first time. Mom and Dad had loaned me money to set up an apartment because they loved the little girl. I agreed that I would come home from Fort Lee on weekends and be a husband and a father. And this was in October 58. I began to do that. 
In January of 59, I walked out of that apartment one Sunday night crying like a baby. I went down to the highway and stuck my thumb up, hitchhiking back to Fort Lee, Virginia. The truck driver that stopped that night to pick me up asked me when I got into his truck, Soldier, why are you crying? I couldn't tell him I was walking out on a little girl I love with all my heart. I couldn't tell him I was walking out on a wife I did not love. I could not tell him that I was irresponsible, that I could not buy groceries, that I could not buy oil for the heater, that I could not pay the light bill or the phone bill or the water bill. I couldn't tell him that I was living to drink and drinking to live. And I boohooed almost all the way to Fort Lee, Virginia in the process of drinking white whiskey that I had in my pocket and a bottle. And, of course, uh, it wasn't long in Virginia before I was having problems there. I was caught in Richmond, Virginia, drunk and driving and hit and run. Uh, they were talking about giving me time. Uh, I appealed from low court into high court, and before I could be tried on that, I was caught on seven other charges down in Colonial Heights. I appealed that from low court into high court. About this time, the company commander was really getting fed up with me because the guys in the barracks were complaining about me. The little mess sergeant hated me. The boys there at Fort Lee were sissies. They were not at all like the guys who were caught up in Desert Storm. These guys were absolute sissies at Fort Lee, Virginia. I could go in the mess hall in the morning early and puke just a little puddle, and they get all upset. <laughs> they couldn't take it. And they take me to the company commander, who in turn sent me to see a chaplain who counseled with me for several weeks. He in turn sent me to a psychiatrist who counseled with me. And it didn't do any good. A board of officers met and took a look at my record. And they declared that I was alcoholically unfit for military service and gave me an undesirable discharge. And, of course, I went to court the next day, and I did go to jail. But 97 days later, I got out. And I ran from one job to another in Virginia for a year, eventually went back to Roxborough and moved in with Mom and Dad. And uh, Mom and Dad took me back in when I was about 28 years old. And again, I swore off booze. I had another five-month period of dryness. All I needed was a job. I got that job. And I didn't go any place during that five months other than staying around my father's house, my father's store, spending time with a lady that was eight years older than I that mom and dad was encouraging me to see. She was a Baptist Sunday school teacher, and she would be able to save me. And after five months of dryness, she apparently thought that she had, and she asked me to marry her. And it was a pretty good deal because she had a house, 13 acres of land, nice automobile, and I had two pair of pants and two shirts. And that is not a bad deal. And she didn't look all that bad either, and we got married. Three weeks later, we went to a dance. And this is one of those Baptist Sunday school teachers, and I mean, I, I have a great deal of respect for Baptists in all denominations. But this was uh, 
a lady that believed in dancing. She was an unusual Baptist. She believed in in dancing. And, and I know that some of the Baptists back in North Carolina won't even have sex standing up because they're afraid somebody will think they're dancing. But this one... This one believed in dancing, and we went to a dance, and I got up that night, and I tried to dance with her, and I couldn't. I had nine left feet. When she would want to dosey, I'd want to do. When she'd want to promenade, I'd do lemonade or something. Anyway, we couldn't dance. But the guy gave me a shot of old granddad, I mean a glass full of it, uh, when she went to the powder room. And when she came back about 15 minutes later, you know, I did get up and dance with my wife, and we had a, this is wife number two now. Uh, we did dance for a couple of numbers, but uh, that night when the dance was over, they had to wake me up at the back of the room where I had passed out. And she went out the room very upset that night, and I went out behind her cursing and vomiting. And that's just about the type of existence I put her through for the next year. But I had learned something during that year that we were married. Not once was I caught for driving on the influence or after license revoked. However, I was picked up several times for drunken walking down near my home. And they carry me to jail or they carry me home. It just depended on my attitude. Sometimes it didn't matter which way I went. But in January of 1963, I began drinking on a Friday afternoon. And from then until Monday morning, is almost a total blackout, insane mess. I don't remember going home Saturday night at all. I don't remember going home Sunday night. The only memories I have between Friday afternoon and Monday morning are very, very short, faint memories of drinking whiskey in my living room Saturday morning and being at the golf course and it was pouring down rain on Sunday and nobody was playing golf. And uh, that's the only memories I have of Saturday or Sunday. I do know that my wife called me on Monday morning at uh, 5.30 and asked me was I going to work that morning and I said yes. And when I turned to the right that morning to get off my bed, my elbow hit something on the pillow. Didn't know what it was. It made a clanging noise. And I raised the pillow up. And under that pillow was two pints of white moonshine whiskey. And I sat there and began to drink it. My wife came into the room a few minutes later and saw what I was doing. And she became hysterical. And she proceeded to tell me that I was a no-good, sorry, low-down drunk, that this was all I'd ever be, and that she was going to work that morning. And when she got home that afternoon after 3 o'clock, she wanted me out of her house and out of her heart and out of her life forever. And she went on to work that morning. And what I'm say or what I heard on the radio later on or what I heard in court... But apparently late that morning after consuming that two pints of white whiskey, I was told that I was seen down at the bootleg joint where I called a taxi and went to town. I heard people from the beer joints uptown testify later on that they would not sell me beer that Monday afternoon because I was drunk. 
I heard a sheriff testify that he had looked out his window that afternoon at 4 o'clock and saw me on the street drunk, and he was coming out to arrest me, but the telephone rang, and he talked on the phone for about a minute. And then he came back to the door to see where I was. He said he figured the police had me or would have me in a few minutes, and he forgot about it. And I've wished him a million times that he had arrested me that Monday afternoon because it was under those drunken, insane conditions that within the next couple of hours offenses were committed that's too painful to even talk about. And, of course, I was arrested again the next morning and placed in jail on January 21st of 63. And on February the 11th, I stood in Superior Court in Roxburgh, North Carolina, as the judge sentenced me to a period of natural life plus 40 years at the expiration state penitentiary in Raleigh. And it was two days later they handcuffed me between two other guys and drove me into the walls of Central Prison. That Wednesday afternoon when I was taken into the back hall of old Central Prison and I was standing there to be searched by the officers and I looked upon the wall, it was a clock, 20 minutes to 3. And that's when the steel door on my right-hand side slammed shut. That was when a feeling of relief came over me. It seemed like my total existence was shrouded with relief. I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that this boy was exactly where he belonged. I had lost my right to live in a free society with decent people like you. I knew that I would not have to bring any more heartbreak or shame or degradation on the good name of my family. Knew I'd never have to hurt anyone else again. Knew I would never have to drink again. I didn't know what prison was like. I had never been in prison before, but I had been in jail many, many times. But I did not know what prison was like and did not know what to expect. But within three weeks in that system, the other guys in the classification section where I was working had taken me into their confidence, and I was getting pills, tablets, and capsules. I was getting little bottles of alcohol, just as they were. This alcohol was being smuggled from the Central Prison Hospital, and I was getting drunk two, three, four, five times a week, depending on how much money I could get together. And this went on from uh, until February of 1964. In June of 1963, several things happened. Uh, I went to AA for the first time. It didn't mean anything. I had gotten fired from a job because of my suspicion of drug activity and uh, using alcohol and uh, being arrogant and disrespectful, and they had taken the good job away from me and sent me to work in the print shop. Also, my wife back home had been, uh, home had been broken into. She had been robbed, kidnapped, assaulted. And I used that as an excuse in central prison to go to the doctor and legally get drugs whereby I could walk around on the yard drunk and they could not arrest me for public drunkenness. I used that excuse for as long as they would let me to stay high legally because of being nervous and upset over what had happened to her. February 16th of 1964, I came to one Sunday night on the fourth floor in a two-man cell in Central Prison. 
And that Sunday night, a little bit after 8 o'clock, I sat down on the side of my bed knowing that I had been drunk since 1 or 2 o'clock that afternoon. I sat down on the side of that bed that night and took an inventory of where I stood. I had absolutely no future whatsoever, not at the way I was conducting myself. I would never, ever walk out here in a free society again. I had nothing to look forward to. I couldn't think about the past. It hurt too much. I could not tolerate the present. It was too painful. I could not get as drunk and stay as drunk for as long as I wanted to stay drunk because I did not have the money. And I could not get sober because I did not have a program of recovery, even though I had been going to AA since June on a weekly basis. I did not have a program, and I had made no attempt to do anything about my life whatsoever. The only thing that made sense that Sunday night was suicide. And I knew that all I'd have to do when this door slid open at 9 o'clock was to step out onto the catwalk and plunge about 40 feet below to the concrete and end my wretched life. I made up my mind that I would do just that. And just a few minutes before nine, wanting to be sure I was at this door when it slid open for a few seconds, I drank the last of the alcohol I had and stood at that door waiting for it to open. And folks, I've known for many, many years that God in his infinite mercy gave this drunk one more shot at life that night. I came to that night around 9.30, 9.35. There was a row of vomit from that door back the eight-foot length of that room to that commode, and my head was in the commode. The inmates in the cell block on the right and on the left said that that night, as I had my head in the commode vomiting, that I had cried out loudly, God, if you help me get back to the AA group, I'll try. The following Thursday night when I walked in the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous at Central Prison, I knew exactly why I was there. I knew that some way, somehow, I had to find relief or I'd bring further heartbreak on my family. I knew I would destroy myself unless I found relief at that AA meeting. There was no way and means of treating alcoholism at Central Prison in those days except through the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I went into that group and found out that, thank God, AA became enough in those days, and thank God, AA is enough for this alcoholic today. Immediately after getting back that Thursday night, Tom Ivester, who is my sponsor today, a guy that's many of you know and have heard down through the years at many, many different places. He gave me a copy of the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, and told me what I needed to do with it. And when I took that book back to my cell block and began to read about the illness, and over a period of time began to read about the program of recovery, and I did other things that he suggested that I do, like pray, like work with others. And over a period of time, a slow, gradual process of change began to take place in my life. 
I did not instantly find sobriety. Even though I was dry, I can't call that sobriety. For the first two years in the program, I walked the yards of Central Prison many, many times with a desire for a drink so heavy in my mouth that I would, my saliva would be thick. I'd want to drink, but I wouldn't. I'd pull an AA grapevine out of my pocket and go off someplace and read something. I'd talk to another inmate. I'd pray. I'd walk that yard. I'd do whatever I could to keep away from taking a drink. And I was very, very active in the program from the very, very first early days of my entry into the fellowship. Very, very active. And yet this desire, this craving, this phenomenon of craving that we know about continued in my life. And I had been in AA almost two years when I went to Tom and talked with him about it and told him that I did not have the peace of mind, the serenity, the happiness that other people had. And I was talking about the people from the free community who were coming in now week after week sharing and leading discussions and different meetings on different topics. I did not have the peace of mind that they had. They seemed to be happy, joyous, and free. And I didn't have that. I was constantly fighting this urge to drink. And Tom told me what he thought was his solution. He told me to take step four and to take step five. He had asked me, had I worked step one, two, and three to the best of my ability? And I said, yes. And I took step four to the very best of my ability, writing down the exact nature of my wrongs. And eventually, we had a Presbyterian minister come in. And I took step five with him. And I didn't take it with this minister because he was a minister. I took step five with him because he had 20-some years of sobriety in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. As a minister in itself, he had not been able to stay sober. Only after he got in AA had he been able to stay sober in Richmond, Virginia. But he was living in Greensboro, North Carolina at the time, and he had come to Raleigh for me to take step five with him. That night when I sat down with Reverend John and he led the way and I began to talk with him about the exact nature of my wrong, with each rotten despicable incident that I brought out and talked with him about and shared about, a little bit of the weight left my shoulders. And that night I walked out of that room a free man. That night I walked out of the room for the first time with a sponsor because I asked him to become my sponsor that night. And he sponsored me until he died of cancer. Two weeks before he died of cancer, I sat at his bedside, and the two of us selected Tom Ivester to be my next sponsor. Tom was the guy that was working as an alcoholic rehabilitation officer in Central Prison when I first went in. And he was an employee of the state, and I was an inmate. And even though I really and truly wanted him to be my sponsor in those days, it would not have been fair of me to ask him to be my sponsor. It would have put him in an awkward situation as well as myself. And I waited until after Reverend John died before I asked Tom to become my sponsor. To make a long story short, I was in all total of 18 years, 5 months, 26 days, and 2 hours. After I had been in 11 years plus, I had already been transferred to the Sanford Correctional Center. And it was up there that uh, 
Governor Scott had commuted my time down from natural life to 60 and 40, and I had served 11 of it, and that left 89 to go. And the parole board told me I was getting out. And they told me to go ahead and rent an apartment, and I did just that. Paid rent up on it for two months. There was a car dealer over there that uh, was in our AA group, and I was already going over to AA meetings, being signed out by community volunteer and this guy was holding a nice Plymouth Fury for me uh, and, and I was looking forward to get out, getting out and about 60 days I was waiting for the letter and it didn't come in about 70 days and 80 days and eventually the letter came from the parole board and it stated that they were sorry to inform me that Governor Scott had not commuted my time low enough for me to be paroled at this time, that under the present circumstances you'll have to stay seven or eight years longer. And I did. I had to stay a total of 18 years, five months, 26 days, and two hours. And that came about as a result of the efforts of a male member of Al-Anon, and I love Al-Anon. This male member of Al-Anon had met me uh, at the AA group over town. Uh, his wife uh, had come into the program, and uh, she was having a real difficult time getting sober. She was a retired nurse, and some of us worked with her, and she eventually got sober. and. Tom wanted to help me get out of the unit some, and he'd take me down to his place of business. And he was just a great member of Al-Anon, a great community worker, a great guy. And uh, he had some pull with the governor. And he began to write the parole board and began to call the lieutenant governor and the governor, and he began to get some other people involved. And over 500 letters went into the governor's office and to the parole board stating that Wallace would be okay if he was out in the community, that he's been involved in a program of recovery for years. He would be okay. And Governor Hunt commuted that time down to 35 years whereby I could be paroled. And I was paroled on April 8th of 1981 and stayed on parole for five years. You see, the last three years that I had been in the Department of Correction, they had given me permission to marry again for the third time. Two years before I got out, I had put in a strange request to the Department of Correction. I had asked for permission to buy some land because a sister uh, had wanted to move a mobile home down from Roxburgh, and they had given me that permission. And then after I met this little lady uh, that was coming out to see my sister, who eventually began to come out to see me, uh, and we talked for a couple of years uh, there on weekends, and then uh, we decided to get married, and the Department of Correction gave us permission to do that. And then I went to them with another request, and some of them laughed. They had never heard of it. I asked for permission to build a home on that property. And they said that they would have to send that request off to Raleigh. And they sent that request off to Raleigh, and it came back approved. So Bobby Jean and I put in for a loan. (laughs) 
We put in for a loan, and I'm going over to the Central Carolina group on Friday night when she signs me out. And this one Friday night was sitting there in the AA meeting, and this tall, lanky AA member in our group, he comes up the aisle, and he walks over to Bobby Jean and I, and he says, Congratulations, Wallace and Bobby Jean. I says, Congratulations on what, Bill? He says, Your loan has been approved. And it made me mad because, you know, a guy that's in prison and putting him for a loan, still got a hundred years at that time. <laughs> he's not going to be telling anybody he's put in for a loan. But he says it's been approved. Uh, approved. I said, well, just how do you know? And this was a good member of our group. He says, I'm chairman of the board. <laughs> and we got that loan. We built that house. And uh, as a result of Tom's efforts, uh, I did get out in 81 and was off parole in 1986. You see, in 1974, I had gone on work release with the telephone company. And, and I need to wrap this thing up. But to make a long story short, I retired from that phone company uh, in 1993 after almost 20 years. And then I went to work with the Department of Correction for two years in the Drug, Alcoholism, Recovery Treatment Program. Bobby Jean and I still live in that beautiful brick home out there on that Aiken Three Tents. Six years ago, as a result of remaining in this fellowship, that home was paid for. The first time in my life that I've ever had a home. The first time it's ever been paid for. That's a far cry from a six-foot by eight-foot sale with a sentence of natural life plus 40. After I got out, I was elected the alternate GSR at my home group. Not long after that, a couple of years later, GSR. Not long after that, the alternate DCM. Then I became the DCM. Then I began the was elected to the role of state chairman of the Correctional Facilities Committee. Today I'm serving as the District 52 treasurer. I've been real active in this thing ever since I got out, active in it since the day I walked into it. I go into an awful lot of institutions. Last week on Monday night I was in one institution east of Raleigh, about 75 miles from home. On Thursday night, I was in another institution about 65 miles from home, west of Sanford. I go wherever I'm asked to. I believe in going into these institutions because unless we carry the message of recovery into those guys in there, they won't get the message. And it's my responsibility to do just that because you people did it for me years and years and years ago. You came into that prison and walked with me and talked with me and loved me when I was unlovable. You taught me when it appeared to me that I was unteachable. You cared for me when I wasn't worth caring for. You showed me how to live when I certainly did not know how to live. And I owe a lot to you for that. Today I'm happy, joyous, and free. Never in my wildest imagination did I dream that the good things that have come my way have come my way. 
I remember in 1965 when I was in Central Prison and I was editor of the North Carolina Prison Publication, the AA publication, and I was writing up an article about the International AA Convention coming up in Toronto, Canada. Had no idea what an international convention was, but I had read some other literature and so forth, and Tom had shown me some literature on it, and I did a little article to go in the center portion of that magazine. That was in 1965. 1985, Tom and I went to the International in Montreal. In 1990, we were in Seattle. In 1995, we were in San Diego. And I remember in 1990, when I had been asked to share in the correctional program at the International Convention in Seattle, that after that meeting and we went to the big stadium for the 47 or 8 or 50,000, ever how many alcoholics it was there, that Tom and my wife and another friend from North Carolina were sitting up at the top of that stadium, three rows from the top. And I was overwhelmed when I looked out across that massive structure of concrete and steel and saw all of these alcoholics from all over the world who were there to share and love and enjoy their experience, strength, and hope. And I thought back to 1965 under a very hopeless, helpless situation. I had been back there in the other massive structure of concrete and steel with the centers of natural life plus 40. Only God in his infinite mercy and the program of Alcoholics Anonymous could have brought me from 1964 to where I sat in 1990 to where I am standing tonight fully clothed and in my right mind and able to hold my head up and look you in the eye and say, I love you, I'm sober, I'm decent, and I'm respectful. And it's because of you people. I know that tonight. I know that I am just as much alcoholic tonight as I was February 16, 1964. Just as much alcoholic. I have far more to lose tonight than I had to lose at that time because at that time I had lost everything, even my right to live in a free society. Tonight I have an awful lot more to lose than that. And if I made the mistake of taking one drink and getting one into my system, the drink in my hand no longer would be the important one. I'd be looking forward to a way and means of getting another and come hell or high water, I'd get it if I had to go into your pocketbook to get it. That's the insanity of my illness. That's the insanity of it. I would go to any length to get another drink, and I'm not proud of it. I thank God today that I've been relieved of the obsession to drink. The phenomena of craving has been taken away, and I'm grateful for that. I'm not cured of my alcoholism. I have a daily reprieve dependent on my spiritual condition. And as long as I keep on praying, as long as I keep on reading the big book, as long as I keep on working the steps in my life on a daily basis, I can stay sober today. I made up this mind here in this great city of Atlanta that I am an alcoholic this morning and that come hell or high water, I am not going to drink today. And I'm not.
I am not going to drink liquor today. And tonight I'll thank him for that. I am not cured. I will never be cured. I am an alcoholic that's one drink away from a drunk. But I believe this with all my heart. I'm 12 steps away from the first drink. I believe that because I believe, as my sponsor told me years and years ago, to the very best of my ability, I must practice the principles and teachings of this program wherever I am, on my job, at the golf course, uptown, wherever the principles and teachings need to be practiced. And when I do that, I can get along with myself. I can get along with you. I have peace with God and my fellow man under those conditions. And when I stray away from that lifestyle, I get in trouble with me, and I get ill at ease and discontent. This is a wonderful way of life, a way of life that enables me to be happy, joyous, and free. I had to go through the steps while I was there in prison, working on character defects, making amends and restitution to the very best of my ability while I was in prison, and I made men's amends to the best of my ability by writing letters and so forth. And I know that after I had gotten through step nine, that the promises had come true in my life. I remember being at Mom's bedside before she died. And this was in 1971, right after I had been transferred to the Sanford Correctional Center. I had been taken to Roxborough to Mom's bedside that night. Mom was dying of cancer. All of the great medical minds had not been able to do anything about her problem. And this AA member had signed me out of the unit and took me to her bedside. And when I went into that hospital room that night, she lay there weighing about 65 pounds. And she began crying when she saw her baby boy, Wallace. And I says, Mom, don't cry. Are you crying about me? She says, No, Wally, I'm not crying about you tonight. You're going to be all right. She says, I'm crying about your brother. He's drunk. He knows I'm dying, and he can't be here tonight. But says, You're going to be all right. I believe that. And she says, But will you do something for me? And you know a guy in prison at his mother's bedside when she is dying will promise her anything, won't he? She says, will you do something for me, Wally? And I says, yes. She says, will you always stay in that AA thing? And I says, yes, Mom, I will. That was February of 1971. Here it is, 1977. And her baby boy, Wallace, is standing before you tonight, still an active member of Alcoholics Anonymous. But it's not because of the promises I made to Mama. It's because every one of the promises on page 83 and 84 of the big book have come true in my life. And I know what our new freedom and our new happiness is all about. Judge Bickett says, Young man, I sentence you to natural life, plus 40. He meant that my body was to stay in the custody of the Department of Correction for 24 hours after my death before it could be turned over to my family. That's what he meant by natural life. He didn't know that he was putting me in a situation where I'd make that unconditional surrender, whereby I would get in touch with you people, and you would come in and talk with me and walk with me and teach me and show me 
what a natural life is all about. You teach me how to be responsible, how to be lovable, and how to fulfill my obligations in my home group, in my community, in my family life, in my social life, wherever I am. It's you people that taught me that Alcoholics Anonymous is not just a fellowship. It's a way of life that enables us to be happy, joyous, and free. Judge Bickett did not give me natural life. It was you lovely people in Alcoholics Anonymous. You've given me a natural life. I love you for it. Thank you.